0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Soccer, Foot and Football. I hope you are all doing well. Today we have our last episode of um, kind of my project series where I talk to you about uh, Turkey first and Germany and the UK. And today we're going to talk about institutions and how they impact um, soccer and whether or not it fosters cosmopolitanism in Europe. So that's going to be the last podcast for this series, and then we're going to move on to new things. Um, So what do I mean by institutions, I guess is a good place to start. So really it's, it's pretty broad, it's more kind of the governing bodies type of thing, so FIFA would fit under this category, UEFA as well, but also things such as uh, the EU. We're going to talk about the European Union and how they actually use football as well. Um, but the first thing is, I think, a, a pretty interesting statistic. And it's that currently in FIFA, there are 211 nations. And I'd say nations kind of loosely because Some of them aren't recognized by all the members as nations like Kosovo and so on, but essentially there are 211 members in FIFA. Meanwhile, in the United Nations, there are 193 members. So essentially, FIFA brings 20 more members to the table than does the United Nations, which is supposed to kind of include everybody's voice, which I think is a crazy statistic, the fact that the governing body of soccer has more members in terms of nations than the United Nations, which gives them a tremendous platform to really lead and uh, create the world that they want to see. And part of that is um, creating cosmopolitanism or at least trying to stop tribalism. And I say that pretty confidently because if you look at FIFA's kind of code of conduct or rule book, if you will, I'll read you a a direct quote. It says, Any person who offends the dignity or integrity of a country, a person, or group of people, through contemptuous, discriminatory, or derogatory words or actions shall be sanctioned with any appropriate disciplinary measure. Which is a pretty, end quote, by the way, (laughs) which is a pretty kind of drastic message, I guess. It's saying, Look, if you participate in this behavior, we have the right to sanction you. And it really leaves room for FIFA to to maneuver and and sanction as they see fit. So to bring this to light, I'll I'll use uh, one example I found in my research. So this was in Bulgaria, and FIFA, or specifically UEFA, sanctioned the Bulgarian Football Union. The B.F.U. Uh, with a one-match suspension for fans, so playing one match behind closed doors, no fans allowed, and an $83,000 fine. And this was because um, some Bulgarian fans had been found to make some racist remarks, some monkey noises, and some Nazi salutes towards uh, opposing team players during a Euro 2020 qualifying match. So. After the incident, the UEFA president, Alexander Serafin, blamed the rise of nationalism in Europe, and he followed in in his interview with, quote, Believe me, UEFA is committed to doing everything it can to eliminate this disease from football. We cannot afford to be content with this, end quote. So, again, really demonstrating where soccer institutions stand, Against tribalism, really, is is blatantly clear here. Against um, discrimination, against the exclusion of other people, and so on paper, I guess this quote and the f- and the sanction seems to be good. Like it's eighty three thousand dollar fine, uh, suspending the fans, uh, and putting out a statement against it. But as you'll hear with um, through the podcast series I did with Professor Markovitz. Um, Two of them are out already. Make sure you go listen to those, and two of them will be coming out soon, including one on Wednesday. But anyway, we kind of talked about this in in that series where perhaps sanctions such as these aren't as effective unless they really impact the team. So an $83,000 fine going to the Footballing Federation, that's probably not going to have a big impact on, on the fans that are chanting discriminatory things and an ugly, violent, racist chants. Like, they're not paying the fine. The Football Federation is. They probably don't even know that the Football Federa- that the Bulgarian Football Federation had to pay eighty three thousand dollars. The one match suspension for the fans, I guess they somewhat feel that. But really, unless the sanctions start impacting team results It's going to be hard to to kick all that out, in my opinion. Um, Now, I'm not saying I'm a supporter of this. I'm just saying it's it's an idea, maybe dropping points from the Bulgarian team. Say, maybe they were in a fight to qualify for Euro 2020. You make discriminatory chants towards another player. You make racist remarks. Bam, that's a two-point drop or one-point drop or whatever it is. And then if they're actual fans of their team, they're going to start thinking twice before they behave that way because that's going to impact their country's qualification for a big tournament. Now, I'm not saying I'm a supporter of this. I, I think it's it's hard to find where to, to draw that line because it is such a minority that behave in such a way, so to penalize the team in that manner and to penalize the rest of a country in that manner is hard to do. But... To, at a certain point, you do have to start changing those fans' behavior, even if they are the minority. And Professor Markovic, he he brings up in our series the, the fact that maybe it's reporting or controlling other fans when you are a fan that's going to change the behavior. So if I'm a Bulgarian fan at a game and I hear a group of other fans making such remarks, maybe I need to step in and say, stop doing that, we're... The clubs or the team's gonna get fined. We're not gonna qualify. Things like that. So unless civil society comes in, then maybe it's gonna be hard to to change that behavior and maybe tribalism uh, wins, so to speak. Um, but kind of moving on from from sanctions, there are other tools at FIFA and UEFA and so on's disposal. So, for example, they have campaigns such as the "Say No to Racism" campaign that FIFA promotes and the diversity award that they have that they give to an organization that promotes diversity and, and anti-discrimination through soccer and and things of that nature. But as we talked about in the UK podcast, and as we saw with the statistics from Kick It Out and so on, the effectiveness of those campaigns is, is sometimes difficult to to really pinpoint. So additionally, FIFA and UEFA can use tournaments themselves as a tool. So... Euro 2020, or or at least what was meant to be Euro 2020, now is probably going to be Euro 2020, 2021, was set to be played, or is set to be played in 12 different cities across Europe, so Dublin, Bilbao, Budapest, all, all the way to Baku. And this is the first time that UEFA has spread such a tournament across Europe, rather than making it like one or two nations being the host. So I think I think this is a pretty good tool because it enables smaller countries to to or at least countries with out the economic capacity to host an entire tournament to still take part and host a couple games which puts the spotlight on them encourages other Europeans to come visit that country and creates bonds and memories across all Europeans. So I think it's a it's an excellent tool that can really be used um more consistently, instead of having just one country play host, which is can also be great, as we saw with Germany, but sometimes um, restricts smaller or less economically capable nations from hosting such tournaments. On the other hand, you have kind of the opposite stance. So FIFA sometimes actually bans fixtures between these nations because of political tension instead of the other the tournament aspect where they promote people going to different countries in this scenario there are I think there are six banned fixtures in Europe for like security and, and political reasons so Armenia against Azerbaijan Kosovo against Serbia Kosovo against Bosnia- Herzegovina and so on and UEFA actually has a policy in place that allows countries that do not recognize kosovo as a as a country so spain russia romania and so on to play kosovo on a neutral ground rather than hosting them so what that means is like say i am the spanish football federation i've been put in a qualifying group with kosovo fifa says or uefa says i have to play kosovo um but i can tell fifa okay that's great but Spain doesn't recognize Kosovo as a country, therefore I do not want to host the Kosovo team. I want to play them on neutral ground, so we travel to some other place and play them there. Which, I mean, I guess there are benefits to that in terms of security and preventing political tension from going into stadiums and things like that. But it is kind of kind of sad to see um, politics going over into soccer and in. in in that sense um i think that's going to do it for the for fifa and uefa but i do want to talk to you about the european union um, because they actually have the the european commission so part of the governing body of the eu has a football research in an enlarged europe free is the acronym group that uh, support that does research regarding football and politics in Europe, and actually gives like policy recommendations to the European Commission, which I find absolutely stunning. Um, and their report is is quite telling. I mean, they they're finding I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, "Football is bringing Europeans together. Europeans interact about football, and Europeans follow football in Europe beyond the realm of the nation state." Uh, end quote. Which is quite a telling conclusion. I mean, they're flat out saying soccer or football is good for European identity and it helps create a common Europe. And they back that up with some interesting statistics based on a survey they conducted. Um, As part of their survey, 63.6% of respondents said they discussed soccer with somebody from a different European country than their own in the last year. So say I am French, I'm in France, or say there are 10 people in France, over six of those 10 will have talked about soccer with somebody from Spain, somebody from Germany, somebody from Greece, so on and so forth, which is crazy to think about. Like six in 10 is a lot of people. And then 16.8% of the general population, so that's not even talking just soccer fans, that's talking general population. 16.8 16.8 of the general population supports a club from a different European country. So if I grabbed five people from France, five random people, two of those five probably support a team from a different European country. So again, if they're from France, they might support Real Madrid. They might support Bayern Munich. They might support Glasgow Rangers. I don't know. Anything anything else, really. But again, like... 2-5, almost 2-5, it's 16%, from a random sample, say they support a club from a different European country, which obviously is going to promote some commonality across Europe. I mean, if you find people that support the same club as you from every country, you're going to have common memories with them of, oh, where were you when Bayern Munich won the Champions League? Oh, where were you when... Uh, Atletico Madrid won the Europa League and, and so on and so forth. To have those common stories with people you would otherwise not share anything with is, is pretty crazy and does help kind of foster a, a common identity to, to work around and create links and show that people from Baku aren't different than people from Amsterdam. I mean, it's, it's great to, to see in a way. And at the end of their, their report, the FREE has policy recommendations for the European Union. They say, like, you need to include and facilitate supporter networks across Europe to create common bonds. You need to uh, use supporter groups to facilitate inclusion, and so on and, and so forth. So, although, like, the European Union itself is quite new, they understand that, that football and soccer needs to be a part of. EU identity, if it's going to work, and that that in and of itself is is quite a telling fact um, that a governing body like that needs soccer to create a common identity really goes to answer the the ultimate of question of the project, which is has soccer fostered cosmopolitanism in Europe? And if I just focus on that, I mean, I would say so, yes, or at least governing body, governing bodies believe that it can and that it should. So kind of to bring the whole project together. Um, I would say that that soccer does foster cosmopolitanism based on just the game itself. I mean, everyone can play. Um, It doesn't take a lot of equipment. Teams are supported all over Europe and beyond. It creates common bonds, common memories. Institutions such as the EU use it, and so on and so forth. However, when... The loud minority, I'll say, use it as a platform to discriminate, um, such as nasty racist chants in stadiums or using immigrants as scapegoats after bad results. In those instances, unless kind of civil society reacts and um, turns against that loud discriminatory minority, then... Tribalism does take the upper hand, and you do see that that behavior across Europe, unfortunately, as the kick-it-out data from the UK study kind of demonstrates. But if people react, if people say, hey, cut it out, if people turn against the uh, discriminatory minority, then you start seeing a movement of civil society really helping soccer take its natural course of helping people come together. And uh, I truly believe that's the case. And I think that's one of the reasons that soccer is such a a wonderful sport, that it truly is global and it truly brings people together. So that's going to do it for this series. um, And it's pretty much going to do it for this podcast. But before I go, I did want to mention that a couple days ago, the... Um, there was a ruling on the case between the women's United States Women's so- National Soccer Team and the U.S. Soccer Federation. Uh, the judge saw the case, uh, I think it was on Friday, May 1st, if I'm not mistaken. Um, anyway, results came out, and so I'm going to do some research on that. I'm going to try and get a guest on the podcast to speak to you about it as well, if I can. And we're going to kind of do a concluding podcast for that series, but... Um, because, I mean, we talked about it with Miss Meredith Cash, uh, and honestly, it doesn't seem to be the result we initially expected. Um, So I'm going to dig into that and release a podcast for that in the coming weeks as well. But that's going to do it for today. I hope you have an excellent rest of the day. I hope you enjoyed this podcast of Soccer, Foot, and Football. Go follow the Instagram page, just Soccer, Foot, Football. No spaces, no and, no commas, no none of that. Just Soccer, Foot, Football. Um, make sure to leave some comments with some feedback and things like that. You can also shoot an email at soccerfoodfootball at gmail.com if you have any recommendations or feedback as well. But thank you for being a listener of this podcast and have an excellent rest of your day.